As we get ready to celebrate our Lord's first coming, we get to, start to uh, study tonight His second coming um, in His next appearance, if you will. Um, and uh, looking forward to this for some time, I think. Uh, we're going to come back to it uh, once or twice uh, over the course of all of this when we get back up to this t- part of the timeline. But um, looking forward to uh, really getting more into Revelation next week. Revelation chapter 7. Let's just catch you up to where we are. Last week we took a little bit of a doctrinal aside to understand the 144,000, uh, why it was necessary for them and their purpose. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about their purpose as we move forward and when we get to the midpoint of the seven years of God's wrath, the time of Jacob's trouble. And, uh, but today we're going to look really at verse 9. We're not going to move past verse 9. Um, I'll, we're going to do that more next week uh, and probably the week after as well uh, just to spend some time. This is your hope. This is what, you, what I anticipate, what you should anticipate, what we look forward to. Um, where the accomplishment, the completion of the work of Christ in us uh, begins to occur, uh, where it is uh, realized by us in our experience. And uh, so we're going to just very quickly read uh, chapter 7, verse 9, and then I want to take some time to review back to bring us to this point. And it says, after these things. So we're going to take a little time to define after these things. I looked, and behold... A great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word before us. We pray your spirit might be active in our midst and uh, to direct us into your truth to convince us, convict us of it, that we might respond by faith, uh, believing, uh, to the point that would draw us to action. And Lord, again, we look forward to uh, what you have in store for us. We thank you for this revelation of that, that you are not a God that is uh, hiding, but rather a God that is revealed, that is wanting to show himself uh, not only what you have done for us, but what you will do. And uh, we thank you for your faithfulness to keep your promises. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we have been working our way through some of this uh, timeline. We have pressed ourselves a little forward. Uh, Just a reminder, we are still technically within the context of the seals. The seventh seal has not been broken. It won't be broken until chapter 8. So we are really still within the time frame of the seal judgments, so-called. And so we find the breaking of the seal, so we have not accessed the scroll yet. Remember the scroll um, we identified as uh, kind of a uh, final uh, last will testament kind of uh, document or something comparable to uh, a title deed where Christ takes possession of what he owns and the process in which he does that. Um, and so we aren't really part of that facet um, because 
we are already the bride of Christ, and we're going to see that played out here a little bit. So we have the uh, four seals, there are the four horsemen that are ongoing. We have the fifth seal of martyrs. We have the instruction to rest a little while, and we find if you'll follow those five color lines, uh, that's going to take us all the way to the future. And we've already looked at the breaking of the sixth seal um, and the cataclysm that erupts out of that. Um, within which it says that there's going to be clouds, and it says that they're going to see something within the clouds, and that is the sign of the Son of Man. So that's going to be a visible event for everyone on earth. And so, the, we, again, we, we pretty much eliminated the whole idea of a secret rapture um, after this cataclysm, global cataclysm going on, all the disruption that's happening from that. We have an unnatural <coughs> cloudiness. Um, to the degree that we're having the sun darkened, the moon turned to blood, and things like that. So we have an unnatural kind of cloudiness. So when we talk about um, Christ coming in the clouds, and the clouds being rolled back like a scroll, which is what we have presented here, that there's going to be this rolling back of this cloud cover. Um, don't think of it as the big puffy clouds that we think of in New Mexico here. This is going to be a pretty unnatural cloud cover and one that is really caused by the activity of the sixth seal that has disrupted the atmosphere to this extent. And so we're talking about a horizon-to-horizon global uh, cloud cover, and, and in the midst of this, uh, a portion of it opens up. And, and the clouds, it says, are going to be received as a scroll in chapter 6 of Revelation, verse 14. It says, "...in the sky receded a scroll when it is rolled up." And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Um, and what became visible within that scroll, we're going to talk about here in a little bit. But remember that we had, we had a, a very, very, very short interruption. Hold on. Wait a second. Just a minute. Yeah, chapter 7, where uh, we find that he says, don't harm anything. Uh, we have a little interruption so that something could occur. And that something was the ceiling of the 144,000. If you want to look at this. A little closer, that we have them sealed. We have uh, 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 12, of each tribe. They're virgins without guilt and fault. They're going to follow the Lamb. We're going to visit them again in chapter 14. And so we're going to see that, um, that group sealed. And uh, then we have the next event. After the group is sealed, something has occurred. And we're really not given in Revelation what happened. We're given the results of what's going to happen. And the results of what's happening is that uh, there's going to be a great group in heaven. We're going to talk about that great group in heaven next week. Um, The question this week is, who are they and how do they get there? And of course, we uh, are going to have to focus our attention a little bit tighter uh, remember that what they saw was the Son of Man, the sign of the Son of Man. And uh, we, we looked at that when we looked at the sixth seal breaking. Uh, we looked at the Matthew 24, but I cut you off in the middle of a sentence in Matthew 24. And so we're going to take our time tonight to go back there and to find what's going on. And so what I want you to see is in the sixth seal, um, in chapter 6 of Revelation, verse 15... Um, it says, The kings of the earth, the great men, 
A rich man, the commanders, mighty men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So they had seen his face. In Matthew 24, if you want to turn back there very quickly, we're going to spend a little time in Matthew 24, so you'll probably want to do it more than just a little quickly. In Matthew 24, verse 29, again, immediately after the tribulation of those days, which is our days, the days of martyrdom, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see... <coughs> excuse me, the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So they're going to see the Son of Man. Everyone on earth is going to see Him. He's going to be evident. The clouds have rolled back and there within them um, is the Son of Man. And so what's going to transpire here, we want to look a little bit closer. Uh, And again, this is the close of the church age. And so as it's the close of the church age, we really have the close, uh, closing period of these seals, uh, especially the sixth, the, the uh, martyrdom seal, because their question how long is going to be answered when we get to chapter 8 with the seventh seal. And so the seventh seal is going to be wrapped up into this event as well. Um, so we might have to extend that a little bit farther than what we've, what we've shown there, but it's going to be wrapped up into the same event. So we stopped at verse 30. Well, now we want to extend that to Matthew, 29, Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. We want to add just one verse. So we added one verse in Revelation. We're going to add one verse in Matthew 24. It says, And in the midst of all this activity, they see the sign of the Son of Man coming. It says, And he will send his angels to the sound of a trumpet, a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And so he's going to gather together his elect. And this activity, again, we're reminded, is all in the atmosphere. This is not something that's going to be, there's no traveling on earth going on. It is all going on in the air, uh, in the heavens, that from one end of heaven to the other. In other words, all globally, um, all over, we're going to have this activity uh, of the gathering. He's going to gather together his uh, chosen ones, his, his, his children, from the four winds, uh, from one end of heaven to the other, says there in Matthew 24. We want to add one more passage, another one that you're very familiar with, of course, First Thessalonians chapter 4. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you're probably able to quote most all of that. We want to back up, though, maybe a little bit back farther than you're quoting uh, typically. Uh, usually we come in for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout of the voice of the archangel. That's verse 16, but I want to back us up to verse 13. It says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So this is our hope. This is our expectation. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And sleep, of course, is referring to those who have passed, who have died in our age. Um, The Bible prefers to use this terminology 
because they did not uh, pass into judgment. They did not cease to exist. They simply went into this spiritual state. In verse 15 it says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. And so it's going to be encompassing not only the rapture of those alive, but also the resurrection of those who have died in the church age. And then we come to verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so we have in Matthew 24, the idea of the gathering. In uh, Thessalonians, Paul uses a different word, and that is uh, the catching up. We are caught up together. One, we are gathered together. One, we are caught up together. And uh, by the way, you're going to encounter people who say, the word rapture is never in the Bible, and they're wrong because you just read it. You just didn't read it in Latin is your problem. You read it in English. So the word caught up is rapturous uh, in Latin. And so because we don't use the Latin version of the Bible in the, anywhere that I know of, um, I think some of the Orthodox Catholics still speak mass in the Latin, don't they, or something? I think a few of them do. Anyway, um, we don't have the word rapturous in our Bibles because it's English and not Latin. Uh, rapture is really a Latin word. And guess what it means? It means caught up. And so the catching up of the church, where we're caught up together um, with those on earth, again, from the four ends of the earth, as far as the winds go, um, it, God's going to gather his elect both those who have perished without, throughout the, the, um, who have died throughout the church age, those who have fallen asleep, and those who are alive. He is gathering all of them, and he does so with a lot of noise. And what you'll notice is that all of them have the same noise. Uh, and that's what I wanted to correlate, is this aspect of the shout of the angels. The angels are definitely involved. They have the trumpet of God involved. Uh, and so... And you have this all going on in the heavens, in the, in the clouds, in our atmosphere. There is no gathering on earth. That's really going to come later, where God is going to gather Israel to a Jerusalem and an Israel that is going to be uh, transformed geographically, um, topographically. There's, that's the word I want to do. That God is going to transform Israel topographically uh, in preparation for His coming to gather them to Israel on the land. That's still to come. But we're talking about everything that we refer to so far as all in the heavens. And so the angels are from one end of heaven to the other. And so all the people on the earth, whether they are asleep or whether they are awake, alive, um, are going to be gathered by this singular event. This is what we anticipate. This is what we, our expectation is. We don't see a lot of this referenced in the Old Testament because it's not really Israel's expectation. 
And so when we go into the Old Testament prophets, what we're going to find there, by and large, is Israel gathered as a nation and the implementation of the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel nationally of a land and a harvest. That's what Israel's been promised, is the land and this wonderful time of harvest and this wonderful time of being uh, ruled by the root of David. Uh, and, and that's coming, but that has not come yet. Israel has not accepted Christ as their Messiah, even at this point. Even having seen him, they have not fully accepted him as Messiah outside of the 144,000 sealed till the day. So they're sealed to be a testimony in the first half of the seven uh, years of the outpouring of God's wrath. And so we have the same event going on in Matthew 24 as what's going on in 1 Thessalonians with the same picture, if I can back up, let's see if I can back up a couple of notches here, with the same uh, event that we saw in Revelation 7, that all three use almost identical language, the identical events going on, uh, and so we, we have to conclude that by the time we get to chapter 7, and we have a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, tongue, that we have this group arriving in heaven, this must be how they were gathered. We, we make the connection from Revelation into Matthew and into uh, Thessalonians by this event, by this receding of the scroll and the Son of Man being visible. This is the key that overlaps these, that we know that we are talking about the identical events. This is very different than what we're going to see at the end of the age. At the end of the uh, uh, seven years, how does Christ come? How is he presented? Well, let's go back to Revelation C. Uh, let's go to Revelation chapter 20. I'm sorry, 19. Pick up in verse 11, if you're there. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies in heaven clothed him fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he carried, cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come, Gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, uh, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And then it goes on to talk about uh, some occurrences with the beast. Now, this is the other description of the coming of the Lord. And, strangely enough, um, the typical view 
of these two passages is that this passage in Thessalonians and the passage in Matthew 29 to 31 are talking about two separate comings of Christ. That this one refers to the rapture in Thessalonians, but that Matthew 24 is comparable to Revelation 19. Well, isn't that strange? Well, here's what they would say. They would say that, well, you have Christ coming, you have all the nations lined up, you have a gathering together, because that very word gathering together is used in Revelation 19.17. It really is. You have all the captains and all these mighty men that, just like you have in Matthew 24, listed in Revelation 19. But of course, once we get beyond that, it all kind of falls apart, doesn't it? Who is it that's being gathered together? Is it the elect in Revelation 19? No. The elect aren't the ones being gathered together. The gathering together very obviously is referring, yes, there's an angel involved and he is crying out. But what is he, who is he crying out to? The birds. <laughs> I don't think that's the chosen ones of God that's referred to in Matthew 24 are the birds not coming to him, but coming to eat the flesh of men. And so they would align Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31, with the events of Revelation 19, instead of with the rapture, with the uh, coming of Christ before his seven years. Uh, and then, of course, we look at the nations, and both in Matthew 24, as well as in Revelation uh, chapter 6, with the sixth seal, we find the nations in what state? They're full of fear. They're full of mourning. They're on their faces. They're, they're wanting to perish. But when we get to Revelation chapter 19, what is the condition of the nations with relation to what they're seeing coming at them from heaven? Well, it says that they were gathered together. There it is again. They were gathered together to make war. They weren't hiding. They weren't afraid. They weren't, they weren't mourning at all. They're indignant. They're defiant. They're ready to make war. Bring it on. We're ready for you. They really think they're ready. Given the work of the three frogs, if you don't know about the three frogs, you have to stick around for a lot of weeks, before we get months before we get to it. But they're, they're ready. Um, I don't see that in Matthew 24, 29-31 at all. We have a very different attitude among the nations. They, they're frightened. And they are uh, sorrowful that they're not ready for this and that they are seeing the face of the Son of Man in heaven in this disrupted atmosphere and they're not ready to make war. They're not even gathered for war. They're not ready for it. They're shocked by what has just happened, what they are seeing. These people are almost anticipating. They're ready for it. They are gathered together themselves for war. They are ready which is fascinating to think about, that in the seven years where no one can come to know Christ, when men are made to believe a lie, we studied that last week in Thessalonians, where uh, the deceiver is just free to operate without a restraint, 
that somewhere in the midst of all this, they figure out when it is that Christ is getting ready to come back. Now, he prepares the way for them, and, and he's gathered them. He, God's, God's enabled it, certainly, but the men are gathered. They're ready. They're ready to take Jesus on. They're expecting him back. And again, it goes back to what we talked about this morning, the message that there's a difference between a knowledge of and belief in. Well, they had a knowledge of Christ's return now. And they believed enough of it to gather not in repentance, but in rebellion. And that's not the condition we find in Matthew 24. And then, of course, we see that Christ isn't coming in the same way. He's coming riding a horse. We don't have that described for us in Matthew 24. We find him coming with an army. We don't find that in Matthew 24. All we find is him gathering his chosen ones uh, through the message of the angel. Uh, we don't find the loud voice. Uh, we don't find that trumpet sound. We don't find any of that in Revelation 19. Uh, and so uh, most commentators, most of your prophecy guys are going to connect the verses of Matthew 24, 29, 30, and 31 to Revelation 19. They're going to make these correlations, but they're extraordinarily weak. They have very little to do with the context, and they just don't match. Not when we have a perfect match, an absolutely perfect match in Revelation 6 and 7 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. A perfect alignment. Why does this matter? Which one it connects to? Um, well, in our handling of Matthew 24... If we want to go, we're going to go back there. Um, it really aligns with um, the passage before verse 29. And we're going to be studying that out later on, but I really just want to share with you, I better put that angel up there so you guys all know what we're referring to there. I think that's our last one. Is that right? Yeah, it calls us back out. Let's me back up here. In the verses prior to Matthew 29, remember, in, in, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, in the verses prior to that, we have a pretty lengthy description by Christ to his disciples about some horrible things that go on. And we are given specific instructions about what to do with those horrible things. And what our prophecy teachers would have us believe is that and some of these men I've met myself and I've had some discussions with them when they were still alive and on the earth and they're not anymore. Uh, well, one of them is. But uh, uh, their contention is that none of this is for us. That this passage is not for our preparation but for Israel's preparation. For them to endure the seven years of the outpouring of God's wrath. The difficulty is that if that's the case, um, and somehow the disciples represent uh, Israel in the future rather than the church in, its, in the present, um, why is Christ uh, focusing in on, look, here's the Christ there, that we're not to believe it, that false Christ and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. There's a passage here in Matthew 24 that tells us 
that we are involved in this. That these instructions are for us. That the passages prior to Matthew 24, 29, that we are to be attentive to that. And when we hold the other position that, that Matthew 24, 29 through 31 is referring to Revelation 19 event, that we're going to be with Christ, we're going to be part of the armies of heaven, then the passages prior to this have no, no bearing on us. And that puts us in a very dangerous place, a susceptible place that I think is totally unacceptable. That it is inappropriate for us to come to God's Word and consign it to a future body of saints outside of our experience. Um, and therefore, we shouldn't have to worry about these things. Well, the fact is, is that all of these things did happen, have happened, and are happening. Jerusalem did fall after Jesus said this. It really did. And that's one of the things we're going to look at. The first century Christians had to be ready for this. They had to be. Especially the Israelite believers within the church. It was huge. It was unmistakable, as we're going to see uh, weeks from now, um, when we get into chapter 12 of Revelation. Uh, we can't miss it. They had to be ready for that. And everything in the balance is for the church age to be braced for. Are we really ready? Now, my wife did something tonight. And she's not in the room, so I'm talking about she's on the, she's listening to me on the monitor. My wife did something tonight before the service, if you were here early enough to see it. She said, oh, we're going to talk about the rapture tonight. Let's practice. How do you practice for the rapture? Normally in churches, the way you practice for the rapture is everybody jumps up at one time. Okay, and she did that. She jumped up in front of everybody, and it was pretty funny. Um, now that I know that she can still jump that high, I don't know. No. She's still a spry little chicken. Um, young chicken. So... She jumped up, and that's how we practice for the rapture. Um, and that's all there is. That's what it is. Enduring till Christ's coming is just being ready to make the final leap. And that's all there is about the rapture. We're just kind of holding our breath, waiting. And when you, when you look at how the church has responded to people who have said, um, you know, I think Christ's coming is going to come about in this time frame. Sometimes locating the exact day or week or month or event. Um, and they point to it. And it's fascinating to see what people do in preparation for that. They go to the mountains, they camp out, they want to watch it all occur. Um, and they're ready. I'm ready for Christ's return because I'm out here waiting. Because he said he's going to come back today. And so... Uh, they, sometimes they'll sell their stuff, give it away, um, and just go up there and they're going to wait on the mountain. Um, that is really weird. You know why? Because nowhere does God's Word say to prepare for that in that fashion. Um, the ones who are told to run to the mountains are the ones who... Um, are having to go through the experiences of his wrath 
uh, and they, as well as that, and he's saying, you know, you're going to hide in the mountains. You're, you're not there to uh, await an arrival. You're there to hide out from being hunted. That's the purpose of the mountains. Flight to the mountains is not to camp out and wait for Christ's coming. The flight to the mountains that I think more specifically refers to the fall of Jerusalem, and he says, pray that it doesn't happen in winter. Pray that it doesn't happen while you're pregnant. Okay, pray for those two things, that it doesn't happen when you're pregnant and when in the winter. Well, that's not referring to Christ's coming, is it? That's not referring to just happily camping there, waiting for the clouds to roll back. Oh, there's no clouds today. How can it happen today? Oh, there must be something coming. That's not the preparation we're called to do. Rather, the, the rapture practice, if you will, the preparation is about enduring it. It's going to happen so quickly. Verse 27 says, As lightning goes from the east to the west, so is the coming of the Son of Man. There's a suddenness to it that is going to come upon us. But what isn't sudden is the tribulation that we have to endure to get to that day. And our expectation, um, if our timeline is in accordance with Revelation, our expectation is according to Revelation, the seals, maybe rapture practice is, is doing something like this. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready for the earthquake. I'm ready for whatever's falling. I'm ready to brace myself because I'm going to get knocked off my feet by the cataclysm that's coming. That's going to be a precursor of the clouds rolling back and the angels being sent to gather me, to, to catch me up, to join Christ. And it changes our whole perspective. And now we recognize that there's going to... that preparation for that day isn't just me um, twiddling away the, the time uh, till He comes. That God uses the word endure for a reason. Because that period of time is going to be intense, it's going to be difficult, and it's going to be harsh. On multiple levels. For us, um, our harshness is on a different level. We're going to talk a lot more about that um, in, in the, in, later on. But our, our endurance um, is going to be on a subtle but very harsh level but very subtly harsh. And there is subtle harshness compared to uh, violent and direct harshness in terms of what we think of a physical violence and physical persecution. We are in the midst of, of an onslaught on our faith in this country that we don't recognize. We don't recognize just how harsh our country is uh, on our faith. How much of a horrible impact they're having. And so we are to be alert. Not necessarily to, is Christ coming today? And, you know, I hope, you know, I hope he's coming. And we use the phrase, because the Bible says, if the Lord wills, is what, what the Bible says in James, the honor is supposed to plan, I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. But it's if the Lord wills, I will do that. And we have replaced that with another phrase. We say, if the Lord tarries. What do we mean by that? We mean, well, if the Lord doesn't come back before that happens, then this is my expectation for this happening. That's a very different statement than the saying, if the Lord wills for me to do that. And 
What is the difference between those two statements? The difference is, is that you're going to do what you want until Christ comes back. If the Lord tarries, this is what I'm going to do. The other one says, I'm going to do whatever God wants me to do. Period. If the Lord tarries, this is what I'm... Not if the Lord wills. And that, those are two very different philosophies behind those words. And, and maybe we mean what the Lord wills when we say that the Lord tarries, but words have their genuine meanings. And the genuine meaning of that is, if the Lord doesn't come back, this is what I'm going to do. And that's very different than saying, I'm going to do whatever the Lord wants me to do tomorrow. And I'm kind of planning this, and if the Lord changes that plan, so be it. Whether he comes or not, he can change your plans. That's what it means when we say, if the Lord wills. And so all these things have been wrapped up in our statements of, of expectation of the rapture, the imminent return of Christ, that we've kind of lost track of passages like Matthew 24, where, where we have tribulation, we have false Christ, we have attacks on our faith, um, spiritual attacks, maybe not physical attacks, but spiritual attacks. And all the while, we're, we're twiddling our thumbs and, and resting on our laurels and, and camping out on mountaintops waiting for this event. When the Bible says, this is your hope, but because this is your sure hope, now you have to live a certain way. And that's what, what Paul's telling the Thessalonians. Don't get wrapped up in this stuff. You're not going to miss it. Being expectant of Christ's return is about being alert to sustaining and maintaining my faith. Not of walking around going, is it today, is it today, is it today, is it today? That is not what it means to be expectant of Christ's return. It's about understanding that today I have to confront the fact that in my society, in my circle of influences in my life, whether they be personal influences of my friends, my family, those I engage with, my coworkers, students, or whether it be other influences that I don't even know called media, whether it be my favorite television show, my favorite game, uh, my favorite, whatever, that these circle of influences around me are affecting my faith and I have to stay alert to the fact that I cannot let them spot me. I cannot become spotted with the world. That's what it means to be ready for Christ's return, is that I am alert. I am on the, the wall as an active soldier um, looking for the assault that's coming. We are the watchmen, as the Old Testament refers to it. The watchman on the wall. Well, the watchman on the wall isn't looking back over his shoulder into the camp saying, oh, when, when, when am I going to get relieved? He's not looking up in the sky and saying, well, when does this end? What is the watchman on the wall doing? He's looking for the enemy. And all the time we're looking for Christ, we're ignoring the enemy that's engulfed us and swallowing us. And we're losing ground in faith to all of these. 
because we haven't been told to look for him because the next thing to happen is the rapture. Well, that's not the next thing to happen. The next thing to happen is another person is going to die for Christ's sake. That's the next thing to happen. You ready for that? That's the next prophetic event is someone else has to die for the name of Christ. Because if that had happened, the last person, Christ, would have come. And it would come with the shaking of this earth. Are we ready? Are we practiced for that? Are we endurers? Are we watchful? Are we alert to that? To the, to the onslaught? The enemy is approaching the walls. The outer defenses have long been breached. We are well into the falling away period that Thessalonians talk about the falling away must occur first. We're, we're well beyond that. They have breached the outer walls. They have breached the outer defenses. They're lost. They really are. And we, and we hear people thinking that we can reclaim them and they write books and, they, and I've read their blogs and, and we can reclaim America for Christ. It isn't going to happen, people. We've lost the outer defenses. They're gone. Why? Because we didn't teach this kind of instruction. We've been teaching people for at least a hundred years that the next prophetic event that we have to be attuned to is this rapture without the verses ahead of them. We've been starting our memorization of Thessalonians with verse 16 instead of verse 13. I do not want to be ignorant about what's to come. About the fallen, the ones that have fallen asleep. Think about that. Christians are going to keep dying. They're not going to miss out because of that. Are you ready to be a part of that number? Don't be ignorant. There's a resurrection coming in conjunction with, we should have some broken open graves down here. There's a resurrection um, my wife wanted Ken to put her on here somewhere, flying up into heaven, um, after a broken open grave. So maybe we can make that happen by next week. I don't know. It's okay. We can have fun with it. Because it's our hope. But it isn't our activity. It's our hope. It is what is sure and accomplished. It's as sure, that event is as sure as Christ's resurrection. That that happened in the past is that this will happen in the future. Um, what isn't so sure is what's going to happen in terms of your engagement in the war that is confronting you until that day. Day's coming. It's great. I look forward to it. But until then, are we prepared to do God's will? Are we prepared to endure? Are we alert to the onslaught of the enemy on our faith? In uh, my book, I wrote, um, and I wrote that after some careful reading of some old theologians. And here's what almost every one of those theologians, I've shared some of these. When we did our church history study years and years and years ago, and we went through it on a Bible study, um, I read to you these quotes. And uh, they were written 200 years ago, 100 years ago, by guys that died 100 years ago, that died 200 years ago. 
and what they saw around them. They looked at their society. They looked at the church, at the Christian community over the course of their lifespan, from when they first became pastors till they wrote their last sermon. And when they examined that period of time, here's what their conclusion was. Oh, Christ must be coming because the church has deteriorated so much over that time. 200 years ago, that's what men wrote. A hundred years ago, that's what they wrote. The church has deteriorated so far. We are so far from righteousness and what it means to really be holy, holy, holy that, that they're, they're, I don't know how much longer the church can last. Generation after generation of pastors have looked back over their ministry lives when they're in their 90s and they look back since they were in their 20s, so that's 70 years, and they have concluded that the church has lost substantial ground in the areas of righteousness, in the areas of practice, in the areas of, of evangelism, and of their impact on society. And their conclusion over and over again is that society has influenced us more than we have influenced society. Why? Because we're not alert. We want to fight on the world's terms. And we are just waiting to jump out of our chairs and disappear and leave our clothes behind. Christ's coming is going to be sudden. The onslaught of the enemy is ongoing. It's still happening. And we need to be alert. And so it's important that we handle these passages correctly and get them right so that we don't discount them and say, oh, all that that Jesus said, that's for those Jews in the tribulation. Not us. Wrong. It is for you. Look around. Be alert. The enemy's coming and no one's sounding the alarm. And that's been going on for hundreds of years. At least the last 200 that we haven't seen the alarm of um, the degradation of Christianity within the church. And so getting the prophecy right is important to getting the living right, the enduring right for that day that's coming. It's our hope, but it's not our current activity that God's called us to. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. And Lord, we are challenged and thankful for the way you have carefully correlated passages that we might be able to examine them. And, and uh, Lord, we know that these were godly men who desired to teach your word and, and we're just out of time, uh, out of the time of the end. And uh, Lord, we see some of the results of uh, mislaid expectations of, of, uh, mis of just essentially uh, ignoring significant passages of your instructions for the church. And uh, Lord, we uh, pray that you might help us. Uh, we, we can't reverse it um, historically, but we certainly can within our own life's experience. And so Lord, give us an alertness, a sensitivity to the aspects of our life that are really have been decided because we are children of this world instead of children of God. Lord, give us wisdom. 
please, that we might stand fast and be alert to your coming. And Lord, we have a sure hope. We believe in it. And until that day, Lord, help us to do your will. Not ours, but your will be done. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.